Sure, humans can be a little weird at times, but take it from me, I'm a dog. And a person is about the best thing that can happen to a shelter pet. So if you want to learn how you can be that person, get down to your local pet shelter or visit the shelterpetproject.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council. No, no, come on. You set a baby in the cradle and you go, I'm like a rat Charles Manson. He was actually introducing the two and throat singers on Dramadure Express. Come and join us on cover many other mysteries on Dramadure Express every Sunday, 11 till noon, only on WCBN FM Ann Arbor. Good afternoon. You've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel, and today I'm so happy, so happy to have Natalie Bacopoulos here in the studio with me. Her debut novel, The Green Shore, um, is on the table here with us, out with Simon & Schuster. Um, welcome, Natalie. <laughs> Thank you, T, so much for having me. I'm so excited to be on the show. Uh, well, it's great to see you. And um, you've been so busy because the book itself came out in the, in the, the summertime, Natalie, right? That's right. It came out in June. In June. And so then you were doing some some touring i feel like you were also you were also doing like you did you were in i feel like vogue and oprah like weren't wasn't there like this whole whoop, tell us about the whoop. well there was something in an oprah magazine where she had she was doing something or not she the magazine was doing something with six or seven female novelists or writers who had books coming out this summer and the the inn was sort of here's here's writers but we're going to dress them up in in fashions for under a hundred dollars and so um and so i knew that this was happening but i also didn't know exactly how it would be and i guess you know i've never been in a photo shoot and so it was a, it was a really fun experience but it, i we talked about the book a little bit there was a editor who said well let's tell me tell me a little bit about the book were they trying to find some connection to the outfit natalie or no oh, okay <laughs> Because <laughs> then you're like, well, why do you want to know about the book? They wanted to know about the book, but then really they wanted to know about, you know, mascara and and um, what kind of what is your beauty regimen? And some of the writers were all into it, and others were more um, just cherry chapstick. And they kept asking, well, isn't there something else you can tell us? But you know, I, I gave them some goods, and but it was to highlight our books, but also it was a fashion spread, which sometimes I think 
these are, you know, women writers and we're being dressed up as, you know, in, in clothes and makeup. But Oprah has done so much for the book in general that I think she balances it out. And, you know, who doesn't like to get dressed up once in a while anyway? So, Yeah, but it's, but it's true. You, it's a good point. When was the last? I can't really think of a, a similar situation where a group of men then are dressed, dressed up with their books <laughs> right like i don't th- that's interesting well uh, did you did you see the recent one in vogue that, no maybe no well maybe, no what is, what is it Who? well it made me sort of insane because <laughs> they had they had it was supposed to be like edith wharton's friends at her estate and so they she had um her friends uh, henry james was one of the writers and a few other male writers that she hung out with and they were played by jeffrey eugenides juno diaz and jonathan saffron foer which would be fine Edith Wharton was played by a model and someone else, another female writer. Not, a, was, not a writer. Yeah, not just a, a model. <laughs> and so I thought there are no, really, there was not one female writer that they could come up with to, to say, how about we put her in this? And so that was kind of an interesting thing, a, a, women, a woman's magazine doing this, featuring male writers playing male writers, and female writers are in there being played by models. It just, it's just baffling. It is. It is. It's, you know... Thank goodness that now you've written this book, The Green Shore, and we've got some revolution in protest because I feel like more there needs to be more of that. I mean, not not tear gas, but um, we'll get there, folks. We'll get there. But before we get there, let me read Natalie's bio in the back of The Green Shore. Natalie Bacopoulos holds an MFA in fiction from the University of Michigan, where she now teaches. Her work has appeared in Tin House, Ninth Letter, and Granta Online, and has received an O. Henry Award, a Hopwood Award, and a Platzis Prize for work in the Greek legacy. She is a contributing editor for the online journal Fiction Writers Review. Each summer, she teaches creative writing at the Aegean Arts Circle in Andros, Greece. The Green Shore is her first novel. And it was seven years in the making. It was seven years in the making, and the dictatorship was seven years. So I have, I think, I had my own artistic dictatorship at home, which was pleasant always i'm sure <laughs> and completely deliberate you were that was your artistic vision the whole time to have the seven year seven year parallel absolutely right <laughs> absolutely i did a, a q and a with some high school students at interlochen arts academy up north and one of the kids pointed this out that well it took you seven years to write the book and the dictatorship was seven years and um, i thought it was i mean it was an, an interesting uh, observation and I think he was also asking me the question about how you how you manage time when you're writing and what is the how does the chronology of the page translate to time spent doing it it was very interesting kind of he was actually thinking about this in this very serious way even though I would joke that I had my own dictatorship at home when I was writing the book so and and how would it how did you answer that about the time it takes because especially for a young person in high school seven years is a good chunk of time to think about making one thing. I remember thinking when I started the MFA program. No, I don't think it is, just no, so you know. No, I know. <laughs> and absolutely, when I started the program, I thought, um, oh, you know, I'll finish my book in two years and come right out and get a book deal. And by the time I'm whatever age, I'll have written 72 books and won the National Book Award. Or, or the, other, uh, the other side was thinking, I'll never finish anything. But seven, if someone had said seven years it'll take you to write this book, I, I don't know if I would have done it. It just was, it seemed so long to commit yourself to any one project, but I think that's what it takes sometimes. So, 
it seemed I was reading online on one of one of the things that that when you were talking with someone and they said, or you actually said, well, I talked about it like it's a project or this thing I'm working on. Um, there was a time it felt like you weren't even um, comfortable saying it was a novel in progress or maybe you didn't want it to be. I think I wanted it to be, but to give yourself the sort of agency or entitlement to say, I am writing a novel, that is admitting a lot. Of, there's a lot there that you're you're owning up to. And I think I was afraid to say novel. And I think my brother, Dean Bacopoulos, who's also a writer, said, just call it your project and or call it something. He had these different words for it. And then project felt more manageable. I've got this thing I'm working on. And and then and then once I started, I had some pages and it seemed like, well, this is not a short story. And this is not a novella, and it's not a screenplay or a play, and it's not a poem. Um, it, it's a novel. And so then I was able to say I'm writing a novel. And what did that mean to you? Like, was that a shift that when you said it, Natalie, like, was it sort of this, what, what happened then? Did you have some fuel to the fire or did you sort of um, resist it? Or, or what was your process like? Were you able to suddenly... I don't know. Was it like a, a a whoosh of production when you you committed to the idea itself? I don't think I ever had. I mean, there were, I don't think I ever had a big push of or whoosh of production um, where I a coined term. I like it. It's wonderful. Right, right. Well, well, T. I'm glad you asked about the whoosh of production because for me, my whoosh. Um, I, I felt that once I I got on a on a roll. Um, then I was able to keep writing, but I would sometimes there'd be times when I'd realize, you know, two months have gone by and I've barely looked at it because you get busy with teaching and other things, or I was scared of the next stage in the process. And I knew something I'd have to figure out or some research I'd have to do, and I just couldn't face it in a, in a, in a way. I didn't want to go look at it. Or a friend would read it and say, you really need to do something with this with this character or the scene. And I'd say, oh, you don't know what you're talking about. And then, I'd, and then I'd think, he's right, and I just don't know how to do it yet. So there was a lot of, it was up and down, but also I tend to work, uh, th- that's one side of it. But the other side is that I did put in time every day when I was working on it, I was working on it every day. And then sometimes I would take bigger chunks of time away from it. But for me, I like that rhythm of every morning sitting down with it, even if only a paragraph comes out. And would you consider also some of the research you were doing? Like, would that be the work of it, too? Or was that almost was it, is it only when you're actually writing like the the drafting of the, the, the text itself? Or did you consider research and um, going to the special collections or or so? Uh, part of that work and then I think that for me it was both I mean it was a way to procrastinate I'd say oh I'm gonna go to the special collections library today and then I'd allow myself to stay there all week and then suddenly I, I was realizing I wasn't really you know actually writing the story but for me that's all part of the process though there is something about the actual sitting and you know, composing that I felt I almost had to do every day. The research was a great way to just procrastinate on days that I couldn't um, think of something or I couldn't somehow keep the story going, and then I would go back to it. The research would, you know, I would think of something suddenly. What was the first image that came to you when you started this, Natalie? Like, what even started it before you knew it was a novel? Like, back when it could have been a short story or, or so? It was. I wish that I had one specific moment I could say, um, but there were a couple things. And I remember seeing this this movie with um, 
about Jackson Pollock, the painter. And there's this moment where he, by mistake, spills all this paint on the canvas and it splatters everywhere. And he has this crazy aha moment. And I remember watching it being thinking to myself, oh, come on. Nobody has that kind of perfect <laughs> moment. But so for me, it was just hearing stories, knowing I wanted to write about Greece. Um, my father grew up in, in Athens and he had said, he had told me a story about the uh, composer Mikis Theodorakis uh, living in his basement. He was a good friend of, of his uncle and sometimes he would they would stay there together um, for various reasons. And, and this was so interesting to me that there was this leftist poet who was my uncle and then this composer and they were living in this basement because they were sort of underground for political reasons. And I thought, why did nobody tell me about this before? And so then suddenly this became the seed of the story. And even though it didn't make it into the actual story, um, not really, it was sort of what started the idea of this basement in Halandri, which is a suburb of Athens. And the, um, the character of Mikali stayed and he is the, the poet in the book. But the, this is, I think that was the seed of the novel. And you wrote it. You wrote that scene, like that story of those two in the, the, and then it didn't, or was it just the seed enough to be the spark? But then when you started writing about maybe the poet, you He's, never needed to have them, that actual moment of the history of the story happen. Yeah, he, the poet took over, but the original story was from the other point of view of the composer. And it was so bad. I mean, I don't even, I hope it's destroyed. I hope it does not exist. I wrote it for a, a workshop when I first thought I wanted to start writing. And, um, and I, I did write the story, but it was awful. But it did start something. And then I didn't think about it for about five years and then, or longer. And then I went back to it for the novel. And so maybe it was percolating somehow all that time, Natalie, like, you know, in a way. Oh, absolutely. I, absolutely. I think everything that we do somehow comes back in some way or another, you know, images that we might have. And sometimes you think you'll lose them. You think, oh, that was a great idea. And you write it down in the middle of the night and then you wake up and you can't read your writing. But I think if it's worth something, it comes back somehow. Yeah. Even if it's like in it takes a few years, that's actually really hopeful. It might not be lost forever. Those those wisps. I hope not, because I've lost a lot of things, you know, not backing up my files or having brilliant ideas in the middle of the night that I'm sure would be the Pulitzer Prize winning book. Or over a few drinks. Oh, yeah, or over a few drinks. Brilliance. Right, right, suddenly. <laughs> we'll take a short break and then we'll come back. We'll hear some of Natalie's debut novel, The Green Shore, out with Simon & Schuster. Today on the program, Natalie Bacopoulos is here on Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. We've got Stephanie in the engineering chair and we'll be right back. Ήταν πρωί τα Αυγούστου κοντά στη Ροδαυγή Βγήκαν να παραγέρα στην αμφισμένη γη Βλέπω μια κόρη κλαίης παραχτή καθρινή Σπάσε καρδιά με χάθη το γελαστό παιδί Είχε νάντρια και θάρρος και ο νιαθαθρινό Το πηδηχτό του βήμα το γέλιο το γλυκό Ανάθεμα την ώρα κατά ώρα τη στιγμή Σκοτώσαν οι εχθροί μας το γελαστό παιδί Nathalie, are you ready? 
I'm ready. Welcome back. You've got living writers. I'm T. Hutzel. Today, Natalie Bacopoulos is here. The Green Shore. And Natalie's ready. <laughs> Natalie, you chose the music. Thank you for bringing it today. Um, yeah. It was fun to put some things together, although I wanted to bring about 48 songs. And so... <laughs> Well, you know, you could come down to the station and you could do, you know, a, you could do an hour or two of radio with these songs. Oh, that's a good idea. There's, yeah, there's also this Friday shadow thing where literally you could come down right now, Natalie, with no training on a Friday and step in and pull music and play music with a DJ here. That sounds like a disaster. No, it would be all, this, all these 40 songs you're talking about. Okay. But what, tell us about the one we just heard because that was, it's almost hard to stop listening to it. Very compelling. Well, this song was uh, um, written by Mikis Theodorakis, who was the the composer I was talking about earlier. And this one has been now associated and, and is often played and used to commemorate, commemorate the students who were hurt or killed or who just were part of the polytechnic um, insurrection or uprising toward the end of the junta. And so when the junta fell from power finally in 1974, there was a big uh, concert sort of to celebrate its end, the, to celebrate the restoration of democracy, and the song was one of the ones that was performed. And so now it's often used as a sort of song to commemorate the, the this particular event, uh, which is part of also a, a scene in the novel. And and in the yes, in the novel, um, the students when they're they're gathering at the polytechnic, um, Natalie, they have they even set up a radio station within the university so that they can um, like pipe through what they're you know get the word out and they start singing. That's the first thing they do. Is this the song that they're they're singing in the novel or one of them that you imagine that they were? There was there were actually other ones that I imagine them singing. Um, and sometimes I don't know what is my real what is my imagination what I've what I've what my own fiction what my fiction has created as its own history and what were the real songs that they were actually singing during the during this time. Um, but but this is one that I that I really associate with it with the uh, period and the and the it translates as the laughing boy just so you, the sense of the the Ooh. laughing boy and so there's a um, sadness and irony there right because if you imagine like the lyric of that and but there's a sadness in the voice like that you can hear it's so beautiful actually um but to then see maybe even images of what you describe in the novel that that are actually happening to these students um that no laughing <laughs> at all during these these scenes so it would be such an interesting um and juxtaposition there will you I read like, for it oh, sure I'm, I'm happy to read from it um i'll read from i'll read a, a page or so from this it's a, a toward the end of the book it's, it's beginning with chapter 44 listeners at home in case you're following along no i'm just kidding <laughs> so so this is chapter 44 and this is from the point of view of anna who is the youngest character in the book Tank slammed through the polytechnic gates, crushing two students who had climbed on top. The police and military stormed through the hallways and released tear gas. They clubbed through the masses of students as though they were slashing wheat, and from inside the campus arose an echoing bestial roar. With Vaseline smeared around her eyes, Anna hid in the main building, near the room with the radio transmitter from which she had shouted slogans only moments before. In what she hoped had been an overlooked stairwell, she huddled into a small shape as she could. This was where she and Panos had agreed to meet in case of an emergency, whatever that was. Falling, racing, scared footsteps pounded on the stairs above her, followed by the ugly, muffled trample of boots. 
The police ran their clubs against the railing, scare tactics, and Anna brought her hands to her ears. Briefly, the sounds ebbed, and then a second wave of sheer noise blitzed through with a fresh incursion of soldiers into the building. She wanted to disappear in the crack in the wall, to become one with the sheer cement. She thought of the small spaces in her basement and the way she used to hide in them. Anna knew it was only a matter of luck she had not yet been discovered, that all it took was for one man to turn, to pause, to glance over his shoulder. And then a door above flew open, washing her in weak light. A policeman shouted, his gas mask moving like an angry snout. He shined his flashlight on her, and his gruffness disappeared behind its blinding beam. He grabbed the neck of her sweater and pulled hard, nearly ripping it off her body. She thrashed and kicked and fought back, but the man got a hold of her throat and shoved her down the stairs. She tumbled to the bottom. Before she could get back on her feet, the man was on top of her again, kicking her in the stomach. Something crushed inside her chest. She tried again to stand, but a club to her spine crumpled her into a ball. She heard shouting in the distance. She closed her eyes and felt blackness overtake her. Thanks, Natalie. Some uplifting stuff. Exactly. Yeah. So for the for the research for this, was this something that because I know you read your your aunt's letters, Alini's letters um, and that you had other the people that you spoke with who had been through this time was how were you able to construct this? Of course, your imagination. Right. Long live the imagination Absolutely. and fiction writing. Absolutely. Right? <laughs> and and what, what else did you draw on, Natalie? How did you um, make this this scene happen? Well, I think, I mean, so much of it was imagination and the, the feeling, I think so much, and I was just telling my students this the other day, that sometimes the emotional experience of one event can help you write an experience that is completely different. And so the feeling of being afraid or the feeling of being trapped or the feeling of being insignificant, you can translate into something else. And then you have your emotional truth, but the but the trappings of the situation are completely different. Um, for me, the my aunt Eleni was writing me some letters about the period and she was very sweet about it. She'd say, well, perhaps you could have your one of your characters wearing these red clogs because I remember when I was running through, you know, running after this random check on a train, I was wearing these clogs and I, I was running and I thought they were going to fly off and, and I was so worried about it and I thought, of course I'm going to use this in the, in the story. This is a great detail. And just the idea of the red clogs is so yes. visually cool. And that comes in because those are... Anna, the character who you you read about, she wears those earlier. Those are like her shoes to die for. Well, that's a bad choice of words now after the scene. Um, but and she's ru- um, running back to to the train, right? So you actually use it in a. Um, similar way I used it almost I mean this was one of the the things that I almost use exactly the way she told me with some you know some imagination and some 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 fictionalizing but this is one of the incidents that I actually used Um, and the the character was not based on her at all but in some ways you know I think I had her in mind at least one of the people I think your characters become composites of the people that you know and and or or in some ways and I think she influenced this character a lot even though the mother in the the, the novel is named Eleni right right and I, I you know mixed it up a little bit I guess so that's not so so obvious although sometimes I think about the idea of of um, having a character that 
there's a character that you always think is going to be the one that's most like you. And I think as you start writing, that surprises you who become who you become or who becomes you or or where you put your sort of your your strengths and your insecurities and your issues, so to speak. How are you able to say how that happened for you, Natalie, or or is it too too distant now with the the writing of it? <laughs> I think I don't know. I think that. At, at the beginning, Anna was going to be a very quiet sort of secondary character. And she sort of, I feel like it became her book in many ways that she took over the book. And so that was surprising and, and, and fun. But, I, you know, I make this, I made a joke before that I wish that my characters would write the book for me. Like people will often say, oh, my characters, they just wrote the book for me. And I don't know who those people are or what characters they have. But, but my characters were just hanging out and they were just happy to just come show up and hang out. And I had to tell them what to do. <laughs> Well, and it's it's wonderful because you create this family in the book, and then there's extended uh, family, people who are definitely in the family's orbit, so they are family, even if they're not blood, it seems like, in this story. And it seems, um, you, 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 talk, you're, you know, you're, you're not, um, you, you say you love Greece, like this is a place that um, you are in love with in a way you've been going there your life like you you mentioned um your father um is from there you've you've returned there um so when you're when you're writing this Natalie like what is what is it um can you tell us a little bit about what it's like to be sort of in love with this place and have like live there in your imagination maybe for seven years or so or longer because maybe it's something that's always with you because maybe it's part of who you are as a person let alone a writer I think I mean the 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 state of being a writer is you're always you're sort of always experiencing this duality because you're you're observing yourself do something and you're doing it at the same time and this is why writers are such thieves, right? They they sit there and watch things and then take little details for, for later. And so there's that idea. But then when I go to Greece, I also feel this duality in, in different ways because I feel both a part of the place and outside its borders. And so I think this, even though sometimes it can make situations feel... Um, like I'm not my the full version of myself. I think in Greece I'm a quieter version of myself because I'm always listening and making sure I understand something and worried about making a mistake when I'm speaking. But I think this duality is a really nice, um, this tension that this makes is a really great um, trait for a writer to, to have. So I think when, so I have it doubly, I think, when I'm, when I'm there. And what you were saying makes me think of the character uh, Sophie when she goes to Paris that almost happens to her. Absolutely. And I was thinking about that feeling, the way that I have different personalities, I think, in different languages, and how I think as you learn the language better, you can become more, yourselves can kind of combine. But I find that, you know, here I can be witty and funny and sort of self-deprecating. And even if I had the, the nuance and the access to that in Greek, I don't, the, the self-deprecation thing doesn't translate in, in, to, in Greek so much. People will well, not they'll take it as the literal way. Like, why are you putting yourself down like this? Or, so I would sometimes make jokes. Uh, there was a woman who said to me, um, "I'm really excited to." She bought the book and I signed it for her, and she said, "I'm really excited to read this book." And I said, "Oh God, please don't!" And and so then she thought, she thought, um, "Why not? Why shouldn't I read the book? What you know? What is the secret behind this?" And I, I was kidding. And and so there's that too. That even if I'm whether it's in English or in Greek, this it's not translating. Oh, okay. Because did that? I was going to say, did that happen in Athens? That was or, in Athens. Okay, yeah, that was in Athens. 
And so you said, no, really, buy another copy. (laughs) Read it twice. You can buy it, but don't read it. Exactly. Well, I guess in a way, I am laughing here. um, But then I think after reading The Green Shore and what you do so well is to to show us... um, what happens to people who have to start almost who get worn out by this uh, um, oppression and this this um, this duality that's not a good one where you're forced to to kind of return to normal lives that aren't normal because you can be snatched away from your home or taken at any time or off a train um, because they think your passport looks like someone else's or so like, so you create this so well in this tension where some of the characters, um, like, uh, the, the Mihalis is poet, uh, the poet, his friend Evan has a family homes and, um, and, you think, well, how can you still live like that? Like, well, you protested for the first wave of protest years ago. You've done your bit for Greece. Um, but then there's this duality of you must go on, but you're being controlled somehow, or you can only do it in a certain way. And I think there's, I think there's that idea of the, 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 the fear of enjoying yourself too much when, when something like this is happening. And people still fall in love. They still have, you know, they still experience joy but i think it was always tinged with this this knowledge that this thing was happening and i think that that also creates all kinds of emotions that that are you know so great for fiction i think but also just so human that that feeling of of holding two feelings in your mind at the same time and having them somehow be able to access both We'll take a short break. Today, Natalie Bacopoulos is here. Her debut novel, The Green Shore. We'll be right back. Welcome back. You've got Living Writers on WCBN FM Ann Arbor. Today on the show, um, Natalie Bacopoulos is here. The Green Shore, a novel. Um, I'm so glad you're here, Natalie. Thanks for being here. T, I'm so happy to be here. This is so much fun. Uh, Now we're beaming. 
we're beaming at each other here. <laughs> Natalie, the title, The Green Shore, um, is from a poem. Can would, would you mind telling us a little more about that? Sure. This is one of my favorite poems, and it's called Sleep, or in, in Greek, it's Hypnos. And it's by a poet named Kostas Keriotakis. And it was it's a, particularly special because it was translated by Keith Taylor, who is uh, a good friend of many of the, in, of the writing community here, and uh, his friend William Reeder, and his colleague, a friend. And... The poem begins, um, will, the, will the gift and good fortune be granted to us so that one night we can go to die there on the green shore of our native land? And so the, uh, the idea of the green shore, first of all, felt very evocative and interesting, but also the idea that, that um, going back to a place that you're away from. And although some of the characters, Sophie in the book, leaves... Many of them don't, but I was thinking of the idea of exile that this poem talks about and the way that even when you're in a place that has changed and been sort of grabbed from you and the way when this junta, um, when, the, when the coup happened, it, people felt, I think, that their Greece had disappeared or that they had just lost all sense of what it meant to be there or what their, their way of life had changed. And so I wanted to, to think about exile in a more metaphorical sense, that you don't have to be away from home to be experiencing that. And the idea of being able to go back to a place that, that you remember um, was very, um, in, very interesting to me thematically, I think. But the poem, I think, is just also a beautiful poem. I wanted to take a title from something from a poem also because there's a poet in the book and, and I love poetry. And the Green Shore. And it wasn't always this title, because I feel like something I was, we will sleep like little children. Was that, that was a while ago, um, where um, you had said, um, I don't know. So I was interested to see that the Green Shore was something that um, during the seven years became more evocative. Uh, Or was this something totally different, Natalie, that we will sleep like little children? No, this is, and this is from the poem also, the uh, sweetly we will sleep sleep like little children who have cried all day exhausting themselves is how the poem ends. This is my way of getting you to recite the whole whole poem. Really? (laughs) It's sneaky. I could try it. I could try it, but then I would, I, I could try it, but then I would be embarrassed if I couldn't do it. Um, but but I have book. it here if you'd it, like me to read it. In the magic bag, Natalie produces Keith's book, and and Keith, who is a friend of the show, he's a friend of the show. Should I read the whole thing, or what? What would you? Whatever you would like to do, Natalie. Well, I think um, I think that um, sure. Let's read the whole thing. It's an. It's, I think it's a beautiful poem. Sleep. Will the gift and good fortune be granted to us that one night we can go to die? there on the green shore of our native land. Sweetly we shall sleep like little children, sweetly. And up above us all the stars, all worldly things will drift into the sky. Just like a dream the wave will caress us. And as blue as a wave our dream will draw us to far countries which do not exist. The breezes will blow like love in our hair. The seaweed's breath will leave its scent on us and down below our now heavy eyelids, without noticing, we shall wear a smile. The roses will move down from the hedges, and they'll come to us to be our pillow. The nightingales will give up their own sleep to make sleep more harmonious for us. Sweetly we shall sleep like little children, sweetly. And the young girls of our village will stand all around us like wild pear trees, and bending down, they'll whisper to us about golden cabins, about the sun on Sunday, about snow-white flower pots, about our good years, which are all gone now. 
a little old woman will hold our hand, and while we are slowly closing our eyes, she, pale, will tell us, like a fairy tale, of the bitterness of life. And the moon will descend to be a candle at our feet, when for the last time we shall fall asleep there on the green shore of our native land. Sweetly we will sleep like little children who have cried all day, exhausting themselves. Thanks for reading that. Thank you. So the, the We Will Sleep Like Little Children was from this poem, and I really wanted a long title. I don't know why. I love a long title. And um, I, my, But then when I was set, sending the book out, my agent said, I don't like this title, and it's too long. And then another friend said, you don't want sleep in the title. People are going to think, boring. And so, <laughs> and so then I, I reconsidered, and the green shore just felt you know, interesting and evocative. The idea of a green shore is sort of the, the image there is... I think something that stands out. Yeah. So, so I think I, I'm happy with the title. And lush, and something that invi- something vibrant and alive. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Ah. Uh, well, thank you. Thank you for reading that. That that was beautiful. And in, it's interesting to know that something that's so much that is yours. Like you've made it. You've built it. You've imagined it and been in it and struggled with it and said, wake up characters, it's time to work, right? Um, that that people can really have, I mean, sometimes I guess they're useful insights, right? Like, well, maybe not such a long title or, but, but it's interesting that, I don't know, because it's yours, Natalie, but then you're, you listen to people, maybe because it just, it felt then right to you. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, I, I make a joke about when someone gives me a comment and I say, whatever, you don't know what you're talking about. But And that does happen once in a while when you feel wounded by it or you've been working so hard and you can't imagine sitting down to rewrite one scene one more time. I mean, you just want to stop and say, forget it. But um, but I do, you know, I, I do value having close readers who will really sit and engage with a book. And, and I think for every writer, even you don't need a lot, but you need a few that you trust and who will tell you something like this scene is so boring, I can barely get through it or or this character doesn't make sense or do you mean for this to happen? I think that's important. And to listen to them. And sometimes you come to your own conclusion at the end thinking, well, I see what they're saying, but I'm going to try to make it work. But often I think usually the other writers, they can just see it from the from the ceiling in ways that you you can't and so i think i think that's important and having some people to trust some of those voices not all of them (laughs) right 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 um i i love how i think you relay a story of how um you actually stopped you put this aside for maybe six months the the manuscript um because someone said there were parts that you needed to rework and you sort of what you just said then you felt you you were resisting well, I remember telling my agent, okay, listen, this book is ready. I know it's ready. And she said, okay, well, is let's see. Is this Anjali? Is this? Uh, oh, Anjali's the um, editor, oh. and, and but Amy Williams is the, the agent. And so she said, you know, I th- you know, she first said, I really love the book. I love what you've done here. And I'm thinking, oh, this is great. She loves it. And I'm so happy. And then she said, but it's just not ready. And I, you know, I felt like, you don't know, this is this is the best book I can write. And it's ready. I know it's ready. I feel so certain about it. And she said, OK, yeah, it's not ready. And so then then she told me, you know, she didn't say what was wrong in particular. She just said certain things about the characters and the arc of the book and things needed to be thought of in a more complicated way. And and she was right. And I did put it away for 
probably about six months, maybe even longer. I'd go back and look at it, or I'd try to write something, try try to write my way through it. And then when I came back to it, all the things that she had said about it being about certain things being undeveloped were right. And but then I had a fresh eye for it, as opposed to feeling so backed into the corner that I just didn't know how to get myself out. So time can actually can help with that, give you allow you to see it again instead of being just so in it. Oh, absolutely. I think um, the Zadie Smith says that the, and she's one of my favorite writers, that the best time to edit your novel is when you're about to go on stage two years after it's been published at a literary festival <laughs> and you start crossing things out and everything. And I, I felt even when I was giving readings this summer, I'd look at a page and I'd think, I could probably do without this paragraph or I'm going <laughs> to skip this here. Or, I don't like the use of this word or, or something. That's so F. Scott Fitzgerald too, isn't it? I guess it's a, you know, like the constant re, it's not done yet. It's not done yet. It's a masterpiece. No, no, no. So Natalie, were you also, because you said you wrote your way through it. Are you, does that mean you are writing just other corollary parts of the story um, that might not have been directly in the novel? Or were you writing other pieces at the same time or for your, for how your projects work? um, Were you able to? work on other things or like short stories or poems or, or, or maybe essays for Granta or, or was it sort of, this was the project? This was ultimately the project. I think I was working on some smaller things, but even when I thought I was writing, uh, there's a scene where one of the characters, Michalis, ends up in a on a in an island prison, and this was not part of the novel. This was a spinoff, sort of, and um, the, it's sort of still there are characters that don't really appear that much again. And this was really a, I wrote like it nef- as a short nefarious. story. Yeah, Nefeli. Nefeli. <laughs> And she um, and Nefeli actually I became so interested in when I wrote that story is that she has 35 years later is in the book I'm writing now as a much older woman. But this was a spinoff, really. And but then I found that I wanted it to be incorporated back into the into the book. And so that was a nice exercise in in writing a short story and then sort of weaving it back. Um, Other things. I mean, I wrote, you know, the manuscript was probably uh, th- the manuscript I, I, that this book became was, I think, 370 pages. I probably wrote 900 pages of text, and you know, 300 of those have been seen by nobody. And so they're the outtake, so to speak, that that just were my working through it. There's other characters, there's other storylines that never got developed, and and I think that was all part of the. I don't think anything when you're writing is wasted. I think it's part of the process. And and so with those outtakes too, that's so interesting because it makes me think, like in in a like another in yesteryear, <laughs> if if you were um, Charles Dickens, right? Would some of those been out in serial format, and then you have a chance to pare it down for a the completed version, you know? Or would it just be out there with these strange corollary characters or ten, tangential moments? I don't know. I mean, I think there's something so freeing about that, so liberating and so horrifying. I mean, it horrifies me to think of some of these things being out there and um, that or if they would make it out there. So I, don't, I think I think also there are certain writers that can write in a very linear way. 
you start from the beginning and you finish at the end. And, and this, to use Zadie Smith again, she calls them microplanners. They start at line one and they write their way through the whole book. For me, that is absolutely impossible. I can't even imagine writing that way. So sometimes I'll start in the middle and I go back and, and I think about a scene. I don't even know where it goes. And I feel like sometimes I can hear the rhythm of where I want the chapter to end. And so I'm hearing that before I actually have words to go with it. And for me, it's it's such a mess of piecing things together. That's how I write everything. And and so for me, the idea of things being serialized would have been just it would have been it would have been a surreal it would have been a surrealist novel, which could have been cool, I guess, in a different way, but it would have been a it would have been hard to follow. Ha. Huh. Let's take a short break and we'll come back. We'll talk more. We'll we'll follow up on the hard to follow. Um, with Natalie Bacopoulos here, her novel The Green Shore. I'm T Hetzel. You have living writers. We'll be right back. Welcome back. You've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel today. Natalie Bacopoulos here. Her novel, The Green Shore. There are copies at Nicola's Bookshop right now. I know for sure. And and definitely at a bookshop near you, folks. And the the state of the book is happening. Um, now It's there's a write-off happening at Espresso Royale at 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. I think if you go there and, and you're writing and doing some writing exercises and in this fervor, Natalie, don't you get free coffee and donuts? I think uh, it's free coffee. There okay. may be donuts, okay. too. <laughs> While the donuts last. While the donuts last, yeah. <laughs> it's a, well, it's a organization. Fiction Writers Review is one of the sponsoring organizations, and it's a journal where I'm a contributing editor. And then five other literary nonprofits in Michigan are um, coming together for some fundraising. And so it's a friendly competition to raise money for their organizations. And um, the State of the Book is a big event happening on Saturday, and it's all day in Rackham here in Ann Arbor. And, uh, and you'll be on a panel I'll in the afternoon. I'll be on a panel, and I, I'll be on a panel in the afternoon. And, and I think the, there'll be a lot of events going on all day. And the evening talk will be uh, Philip Levine, the poet, and Charles Baxter on stage. And it'll be a really fantastic event. But there'll be events going on all day from from ch- um, young young people 
teenagers of poetry slams to to various panels about writing. And the the fundraising is happening with all six organizations are doing a write-off in the same way that you would think of doing a, a walkathon. And so people are saying, if I'm going to produce this work and will you sponsor me? And it's all just in fun for to, to raise money for these good causes. And and Natalie, have, were you? I wasn't able to pop by yet today because of work, and the, and then coming here. Were you able to look in at all at Espresso Royale? Like, was what was happening? Do you know? Or uh, did, did did Jeremy go? Maybe he sent word. <laughs> I, I think Jeremy has been in out in and out of there all day, and I think that. Um, that I, I was there very early this morning at about seven forty-five before things when things were just getting going, and so. But I think it's been it's they've had quite I imagine a, an influx of students in and out, and um, and so they're all they're writing in the sort of community of you know working together to write. But people are writing everywhere. I have a and the the we're working with teams, and the one of the women on my team has said you know she's writing from Seattle, and people are writing from everywhere to to help raise money. Oh, is that Elizabeth? Um, no, this is uh, Cyan James, who was in Oh, Cyan, yeah, yes. Yeah, oh, yeah. great, great. And then I imagine Charlotte's probably writing from New Jersey um, today. Charlotte Brule. I hope she yeah. is. Yeah. <laughs> Everybody, get writing. Well, this is exciting. And, and folks listening, you can check out more specifics on the schedule, uh, stateofthebook.com stateofthebook.com. So check that out for the schedule and um, and Fiction Writers Review, too. Um, you can see, because Natalie, for that, when you're contributing, those are, you're doing, um, you're doing, you're writing reviews of other books and, and interviewing writers. Right, and everything, Fiction Writers Review is really a labor of love and nobody's getting paid for this and, and it's all writer, fiction writers and poets who really believe that fiction matters, that discussing it in thoughtful, interesting, engaging ways matters, and um, that it's something that that is important. And so, you know, writing a, a book review or an essay about writing or any of these, these things that are, they're doing on there, there's a blog, people are just doing it for, we're not getting paid to do it, we're just doing it. And so um, this is something to raise money to, to help the, the site continue to, you know, update the website, things like that. Eventually, maybe pay the writers, which would be nice. Oh, that would be. Yes. Keep going. <laughs> yes. Um, so, Natalie, back to the Green Shore. With, um, so, so this, is, this is your debut novel, and you'll be talking about it on Saturday um, at Rackham. Um, will you also be reading, or will you be more talking about the experience of writing it, or what is the... Um, I think I think we'll all um, read for a few minutes from the book, maybe a couple pages, and then we'll have a, a Q and A session at the end, or a, dis- a discussion Q and A session at oh, the lovely. end. Okay. Do you know what you're going to read yet? I don't know. <laughs> I I must say I loved how you said, "Oh, I'm going to go," and you immediately started flipping to the back of the book. You were like, "I'm going to do something." Yeah, maybe not that you usually did on the book tour or so no I always read from the beginning at the book tour because I think there's also something if people haven't read the book there's so much explaining that has to happen that it's nice to just drop them in where they will be dropped if they're reading it um, and I, I like when people read from the beginnings of books but every so often I think it's fun to just open to the middle and just allow the reader to you know you can trust the or allow the listener to be able to pick up or to just get a sense of the book but I like I like when writers will sometimes just open right to the middle but but the beginning I've read so many times now that I feel like I could just recite it to you also, but I won't do that now. 
I know. And we've had the poem. (laughs) We won't make you recite that, Natalie. You've been such a good sport all along. Um, So what is this? You sort of mentioned it by saying that um, one of the characters resurfaces 35 years later. So are you, do you know that you're working on a novel in progress right now? Is that the the, the project this is a project and it looks it looks suspiciously like a novel and it's set also it's set in contemporary Athens now during the crisis and also a little bit in the south of France and so again the, for some reason my imagination doesn't want to leave these countries but primarily this time in Athens and the 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 character in the book who was a young woman um, named Nefeli in the in a, a island prison was an artist and this is her um, you know however many years later now as a much older woman and so she she resurfaces as a character and she develops a relationship with the um a friendship with the narrator of the book so they're the narrator or main character i keep going back and forth between first person and third so i'm not sure if she's narrator or just the the protagonist so to speak oh how wonderful so you're in the midst of it so we won't we won't ask you to say any more but that's that's okay you did you also said something before we went to break that i was so curious about natalie this sometimes you know the rhythm of how it's gonna the scene or the chapter is gonna end before you know what that means like you so could you what did, what do you mean by that i don't know exactly what i mean but sometimes i can hear the ending and i either i have an image i know i want to end on that's very concrete i want to end on this image of this you know woman running but sometimes i can hear the language first of the sort of the 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 meter i guess of the of the line and mm-hmm. i know that i wanted to have the certain feeling and i think a lot you know a lot of writers may I don't know, maybe even maybe more poets do this, but the idea of the sounds being sort of a cadence or, or something that, that I can hear at the end. And I also have my ticks, my writerly ticks, where I have a lot of commas and a lot of thing, sentences going on and on with commas and semicolons and commas and semicolons. And, and you know, that sometimes that's part of the rhythm, too, and I end up cutting it. But that's sort of how I can sometimes I'm trying to get to a point in the language that I'm not even sure what, how that's affecting the story. But that's your root. It's because you are in some sort of a, a, a rhythm that's kind of funneling you, pushing you forward. Yeah, exactly. And you trust that, you know, now from writing this long, because you, so when you went to the University of Wisconsin, were you, you weren't originally thinking of being a writer. No, I was there for graduate school and I was there studying physiology and it was a PhD program that I did not stay in very long. But I, at the, then after, after that, I started taking classes as a you know a guest student not not as a I already had my undergraduate degree but just taking fiction workshops for the first time and that's when I first wrote the story that I said was quite a bad story about this about the the composer but it was really my first my first foray into writing fiction at all and so that was happening and and I dropped out of graduate school basically because I knew that it wasn't that I was horrible at science or that I couldn't do it or even disinterested I liked science but I just had no I didn't have that sort of passion for for it and I felt that if I were going to be you know writing on the side and reading novels all the time and and torturing myself working in the lab then maybe I should just be switching my you know my path to something that I wanted to be doing and you haven't looked back no and uh, yeah yeah and then you and you you were born in Dearborn so you you returned to Michigan for the MFA was that by accident Natalie or you know like just because it's a great program um or or what because you were in Wisconsin 
for just what happened? Well, I wasn't, when I moved back to Michigan, I wasn't ready to go, to, I was not ready to even apply to MFA programs. And, and um, but my, well, my now husband had gotten into Michigan. And so we were coming back for him to, for Jeremy to do the MFA. And then that's when I was really getting my portfolio ready. And I thought, well, I'll apply and see, and see what happens. And and for some reason, I was admitted. And and for and some was, reason, all the listeners were just rolling. There's that self-deprecation. <laughs> Go on. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. No, no, no. And so, and so then I was admitted. And but really, I, I thank felt goodness. Very, I, I was one of the. Um, I think in my class, I was one of the. I think more raw. I didn't have. I, I you know, I I didn't really have a lot of experience writing. I didn't really know exactly how to put together a story and in many ways I'm still struggling to figure out how what what is story and how to put something like this together but 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 you also it feels like you've come to these different epiphanies Natalie where you're like you you have this understanding of um you said like such a, a mess of piecing it together yet you have these rhythms that you know these interior rhythms of the language that you know to trust as a writer I think so. I think every, you know, starting a new project is a whole new beast. And I don't think writing one novel teaches you how to write the next one. I think it's, you're starting from scratch again. But I do think that it gives you this feeling of, of okay, I've done this. This one, the second one may, may fail. I may not finish it. It may be better. It may be worse. But I've done this. And so then there's, I think, the second one you have some confidence. But then there's also the panic that the second one is going to, there's the second novel slump, right, that everyone talks about, that your second novel will will be horrible. And then you just get that over with and write the third. That's what I'll plan to do. Okay. Well, although we don't want to, yeah, we want to know what happens to this this young imprisoned artist and her her narrator or her f- friend. Yeah, we want to know, Natalie. Don't give up. Okay, don't I give won't. up on them. And I I think it. I love how you said that you're not ready to your imagination isn't ready to leave Athens or or the south of France just yet. I think it's the more you get to know a place, the more it opens itself up to you and the more that you realize that you're, you're just getting to know. And so I think the more intimate you become with a place, the more that allows for more for more intimacy, I guess, or more closeness or more um, more doors that are open in different ways. I, and I mean this in a, you know, in a imagination way that once you think of once you spend a lot of time in one place thinking about it, then suddenly you're thinking about it in a different way, a contemporary way, or trying to see the, the, the same street cast in a new way. And so I think that's why sometimes people become writers of place, or they call it, they, they, they focus on a place because the stories just keep coming to them in these different ways. Oh, well, Natalie, I hope the stories, I know the stories will always keep coming. I hope so. And thank you so much for being on Living Writers today. T, you're fabulous. Thank you for having me. Jeez, thank you. You were too kind. Natalie's book, The Green Shore. Um, go and grab a copy now at Nicola's Bookshop or your favorite independent bookshop or heck, order it online, right? We're, we're not going to be too bossy. There probably have books for sale at Rackham on Saturday at State of the Book. There Natalie, right? So head by Rackham on Saturday. See Natalie in person as she reads from the Green Shore and all the other wonderful people who will be there, including Philip Levine, who will be on a guest on Living Writers soon, and Charlie Baxter, a friend of the show, and um, just a bunch of other lovely writers that will be there. Um, many thanks, Natalie, for being here today. And Thank you so much, T. Oh, come back anytime. Okay. okay. And thanks to Stephanie for engineering. Um, and a shout out to the Liz and Tex we miss you here at the at living writers um 
And so I'm saying thanks for listening, folks, to Living Writers. Get a copy of The Green Shore. I'm T. Hetzel. Until next time. Ma chambre a la forme d'une cage Le soleil passe son bras par la fenêtre Les chasseurs à ma porte comme les petits soldats Qui veulent me prendre Je ne veux pas travailler Je ne veux pas déjeuner Je veux seulement oublier Et puis je fume Déjà j'ai connu le parfum de l'amour Un million de roses n'embarrerait pas autant Maintenant une seule fleur dans mes entourages Me rend malade Je ne veux pas travailler Je ne veux pas déjeuner Je veux seulement oublier Et puis je fume Je ne suis pas fier de ça This is Free Speech Radio News for Wednesday, October 3rd, 2012. In Los Angeles, I'm Dorian Marina. Coming up, as Barack Obama and Mitt Romney face off in the first presidential debate, activists gather in Denver to criticize the exclusion of third-party candidates. A Senate investigation finds government intelligence sites known as fusion centers wasteful and ineffective, but that's prompted a defense of the post-9-11 program. And we'll go to Gaza, where restrictions on Internet access to pornography-related sites draws criticism. Those stories and more, but first, this news. I'm Jess Burns with headlines for FSRN. The first presidential debate of the 2012 election season gets underway this evening. President Barack Obama and Republican challenger Mitt Romney will focus on domestic issues with the economy likely falling front and center. University of Colorado political science professor Ken Bickers says both candidates could be at risk here. I think for the president, he's in a stronger position on that because he can talk about these as a form of compassion. And that's what paints Romney into a corner to look like someone who doesn't care about people that are struggling. There will be two other presidential debates, plus a vice presidential debate before the election on November 6th. None of these will include third party candidates. The federal government has blocked Mississippi's new